encourage you to use your handout and have your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes. Uh, why don't you just go to Ecclesiastes 1. There have been many times over the, oh, let's see now, uh, 17 years of ministry here that I have said, this is one of the more challenging passages of Scripture. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think I've ever said that about an entire book, maybe Revelation, okay? But I think Ecclesiastes is probably harder to grasp and understand than Revelation. Um, it is one of the most challenging uh, and difficult books for us to understand the Bible. And so I want to take today to just kind of wade into the pool before we start jumping into it. And this will help you get a big picture view of the book so that you can get the basics of it to better understand it. Remember this as you walk through Ecclesiastes, as we walk through Ecclesiastes together, that God gave you this book so that you would love him more. And God gave you this book so that you would live wisely before him. Remember that in any passage of scripture that you kind of scratch your head and say, I don't get it. And you might get frustrated and leave it. Just stop a second and remember, Lord, you gave us this. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. I can't wrap my head around it. So Lord, help me to work at it better so that I can know you more, I can love you more, and then I can live the kind of life I should. Um, Ecclesiastes is a, is a, has a number of passages that are familiar to us. I'm going to read some of them. You're here in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. Uh, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rose. The wind goes toward the south, turns around to the north, the wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Go with me now to chapter 2, verse 15. I'm reading passages that touch on themes that will re re repeat themselves and that are perhaps known to you. Ecclesiastes 2, 15 to 17. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? than I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there's no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for wind. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. Perhaps you've heard this. 
these four verses, verses at different times. Sometimes I've heard them read at funerals. I've heard it read at weddings. Uh, so it just shows the, 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 the way it can be used. He says, chapter 3, 1, To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck what was planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Go to chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. Chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. I just thought of another way that chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 have been used. Uh, We had, growing up, a pastor who used that passage and then submitted his resignation. (laughs) There's a time to accept a call and it's time to resign, I guess. Chapter three or chapter five, verse eighteen. Here is what I have seen: it is good and fitting for one to eat and drink, and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read these, but when you read these, it sounds like the book of Proverbs. And it shouldn't surprise us because, well, who wrote Proverbs? And who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon. So we read a number of different Proverbs here. Chapter 7, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 20. When I took a class in Bible college called Personal Evangelism, we had to memorize this verse. Uh, There is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Shows the universal sinfulness of man. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 9 to 19. I'm not going to read that either. But it talks about how... uh, when he sees that there's, you, you go through the different things, there's death, uh, so what are you going to live for? And then, of course, the passage that David read, chapter 11, verse 9, to chapter 12, verse 14. These are all familiar, uh, many of these are familiar passages to you. Let's begin, first of all, number one, with who wrote Ecclesiastes? And I hesitate to say that because, well, what did I just say? <laughs> it was Solomon, okay? Uh, he's identified in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Look at verse 16. He says, I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. So we know that this was the wisest king who had ever lived in Jerusalem up to that point. You put all these things together and who does the evidence point to? To Solomon. He's never named, uh, but we we look at all these things. But there's some other things here. Uh, Number two, well, you can fill in the blank there. Though his name is never given, 
The author most likely is Solomon. I'll give you some other things that from Ecclesiastes that help point to Solomon being the author. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. He had all the opportunity for what we could call carnal pleasures, things that please the flesh. What do you need to experience all those things? You need money. And how much money did Solomon have? He had a lot of money. Chapter uh, 2, verses 4 to 6. I made my works great, built myself houses, planted myself vineyards. I made gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. So he had extensive building programs. Again, because he was Solomon. And we know from Kings that he did a lot of this, a lot of these things. Chapter 2, verse 7. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. He had a tremendous number of servants. And verse 8 tells us, he had unequaled wealth. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. If you remember from, I think it's uh, somewhere in, in Kings, uh, he made silver as common as stones uh, in his kingdom. Can you imagine the, the, the wealth flowing into the country? Uh, that was so during Solomon's time. There's one other thing I'd point to, to Solomon being the author, and we read about that in chapter 12 and verse 14. I'm sorry, 12 and verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep all his commandments. Fear God. You know of another Old Testament book that talks about the importance of fearing the Lord. Proverbs runs through Proverbs like a refrain. It keeps going on and on and keeps on coming. Number three, many books that help us explain, uh, understand the book of Ecclesiastes, these are sometimes called commentaries, uh, what they will do, and they, will, they, will, they won't use the name Solomon, um, but they will use what the author uses for himself. And this is a Hebrew word. I'll write it up here for you. Not in Hebrew, don't worry, but in English. Chalk work. This is a vain thing. Just hold that up. Okay. Q. Oh, did I spell it right? Yes. H E L E T. Okay. That's the name that he goes by. Um, we read that in chapter 12, verse 9. The preacher was wise. In chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher. In chapter 1, verse 12, the preacher. Uh, it's from a Hebrew word, kahal, to call. And from that, you might also wonder, why did they name it Ecclesiastes? That's from a Greek word, and it's also used for to call or to summons or to proclaim. Okay, And so you can see how we got the name of Ecclesiastes. Uh, but if you're ever reading, the reason I share this with you, if you ever have a study Bible and they say, the author, Kohelet, and you might say, who? 
This is a great word that you could use if you're ever playing Scrabble or one of those word games and you have house rules where you suspend, uh, you know, you can't use proper names. Well, sometimes with house rules, we suspend certain rules that the, the, the game says. And we say, well, you can allow this. It helps us. Um, you could use that. Number four, why is it important to know who the author was? Why is it important? couple reasons. One, it helps you understand the history, the historical context, when Ecclesiastes was written. Helps you understand the historical context, when in history this book was written. Let me give you an example. On Friday, uh, me and Trish and uh, Lydia and Emma went downtown Cleveland to the art museum down there. First time ever. Um, we walk in and you start going through all these different things. We were in one section where there was a lot of, well, frankly, Roman Catholic art. A lot of crucifixes with Jesus still on the cross. A lot of other things as well. I was looking at the date on those. Um, and it, let me, before I go into that, I can see why, and they had things that would hold relics, bones of saints, and things of that nature. They were all over the place. In this little place, um, I can see why Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, they just were, they went nuclear against that sort of thing because it took away from where our attention should be. Remember what Jesus said? Worship him in spirit and truth. And what that does is it takes away and instead focuses on, on things and it results in idolatry and the veneration of things that we shouldn't. But anyway, when I was looking at these things, I was noticing the dates, mid to late 1500s. And you might think, oh, history, here we go again. First of all, it's art, which I don't know anything about. And then history, I mean, that's just yuck. Well, I'm with you on the art. I don't get all the what this means and that means. Doesn't, it doesn't get to me at all. The history, though, and I'm looking at these things, when they really started to do more of this in the mid-1500s, guess, do you remember what was really starting to ramp up? It was the Protestant Reformation, and Catholics were attacking it. And this is one way they attacked it, by more of these things. That, as an example, understand Ecclesiastes? Read 1 Kings. Read 1 Chronicles. Read Proverbs. It will help you get a better grasp. A second reason it's important is not only know the history, but the theology. The theology behind Ecclesiastes. And the theology behind Ecclesiastes is primarily the law. Genesis to Deuteronomy. Solomon references Genesis a lot. The better you know Genesis, the better you're going to understand uh, Ecclesiastes. This also helps you the better, when you know the author, you know something about the man as well, where he's coming from, the way he expresses things. So read Proverbs, Song of Solomon, those other wisdom books. Number two. What's the message of Ecclesiastes? And what I mean by message is this. What's the point Solomon is trying to get across? What's the point he's trying to get across through this book? Before we get into that, number one, 
Many view Ecclesiastes as having a negative view, a negative view of life. Many will say it's just a book of human wisdom, and they base that on the word that is repeated throughout Ecclesiastes. And what is that word? Vanity. And when we hear that word vanity, do positive thoughts come into your mind? No. Negative thoughts come into your mind. That's why there's a primarily there has been a negative view about that. There's been that negative view from conservatives and from liberals. I don't care about liberals right now. Why? How do conservatives have a negative say say that not Solomon had a negative view overall of this book? How how do they work work that out? They will say, well, just like God moved Moses to correctly record Satan's lies in Genesis 3, God moved Solomon to write this so that we could know uh, this is the best that natural man can do until the last verse or two of the entire book. Well, if that's true, then we have to view almost the entire book as offering no instruction for us to follow has nothing really for us to learn from, concretely and positively. Wait, scratch your head and say, how did this negative view come about? Well, in the, um, around 250 BC, remember in school when you had to learn Roman numerals and you had to do addition with Roman numerals? Oh my goodness, this is frustrating. This is just, I can't, I can't wrap my head around it. So here we have Roman numerals. And if you just kind of look at that, don't say anything. The L stands for, the X's stand for 70. And so the, the, um, the legend or the idea was is that there were 70 Jewish scholars who did a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek around 250 B.C., because most Jews weren't speaking Hebrew anymore. So they needed it in the language that they spoke. And the, the, the legend is, is that these 70 Jewish translators independently translated it and all their translations were exactly the same. Now that's a legend. That's impossible. It will not happen. This is called the Septuagint. 70, septa. You can see that there. The Septuagint, translating from the Hebrew into Greek, translated the Hebrew word Havel. In fact, I can give it to you there. H-E-B-E-L. And this kind of has a V sound to it. They translated this, and the word, the Greek word that they translated into is has the idea of emptiness or futile. Of emptiness or futile. Jump forward 500 or so years from the time of the Septuagint to the Latin Vulgate around 380 A.D. Jerome was the guy who was charged with translating the Bible into Latin. And he translated this, looking at the Septuagint, and he translated this into a Latin word. What's that look like? Vanitas. Where did you get that idea? Not so much from the Hebrew as 
the Septuagint that use the expression of emptiness or futile. That's what vanitas means in Latin, empty or worthless. Then you started having, okay, I can't resist the opportunity for a rabbit trail. The Latin Vulgate was the Bible for Christianity, mainly Roman Catholicism, for 1,200 years. Even until the mid-1900s, it was the Bible that you would use if you're using a Latin Mass. And as the centuries passed, <coughs> you had John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, starting to produce <coughs> excuse me, English verses of the Bible in the vernacular, the, the language that we speak. And Roman Catholics said this, in so many words, they said, the Septuagint has been good enough for God's people for this long, it's good enough for us now. And you have the similar thing being said about the translation controversy today. So that was for free. So when it comes to English translations, Wycliffe and Tyndale, they frequently followed the Latin Vulgate. They frequently followed the Latin Vulgate. Even Erasmus, who put together the Greek text that we know as the Textus Receptus, there were several passages that he did not have a Greek manuscript for, certain passages of Scripture. So he had a few Greek manuscripts available, he had his Latin Vulgate, and he's trying to get this Greek translation done. The Latin Vulgate had this passage here. The six or 12 Greek manuscripts he had didn't have it. So you know what he did? He back-translated from Latin into, English, into, into Greek. Now that's not the way that you do uh, copying, okay? Well, all that to say, English translations follow the Latin Vulgate. And when the English translation saw Vanitas for Ecclesiastes, guess how they translated it in English? As vanity. And so the opinion up until about 70 years or so ago was pretty much this. Yep, everything is vanity. That is apart from a life devoted to God. Everything is a waste. Everything's uh, Worthless unless you live a life devoted to God. Those last couple verses in Ecclesiastes. And that has continued up till now. So I asked number two, did Solomon express a negative view in Ecclesiastes? The book has a real point. It has an objective and it has a purpose. His purpose was trying to figure out the meaning and purpose of life and how that affected his daily living. What is the meaning of life, what is the purpose of life, and how must that affect how I live? I want you to stop a second. Did you hear how I worded that? Solomon doesn't say life is a waste. Solomon says, I'm trying to figure out what's the meaning and the purpose of life. Is that a good thing, Christian? It sure is. It sure is. That's good and that's positive. So number three, how should you understand this Hebrew word havel, or vanity, as it's translated in almost all English translations? In his pursuit, Solomon repeatedly uses a word, and he 
uses this word to express how difficult it is to find meaning and purpose in life. It can be sometimes frustrating and it can be incomprehensible. This Hebrew word, the basic idea of it is that of a breath or wind. I'd write that down. It's breath or wind. And it talked, he uses it here, not in a literal sense, but in kind of a metaphor, a figure of speech, to show that the meaning of life can be elusive. It can be elusive. It slips out of your grasp. And I'm really tempted right now for us to all try and experiment to see, uh, to put this into practice. So this word can mean breath or wind. And so it'd be fun to maybe try a little experiment here where you put out your hands, don't do this. Um, and then you, you breathe, okay, kind of like that. And you breathe, and now try to catch your breath. What's going to happen? Will you succeed? You will fail, won't you? And every time you try to do it, it's it, and you fail, it, and you keep doing it, and you keep trying, eventually you will get frustrated. And you'll say, this is hard to grasp. Um, it's elusive. There's an emotional aspect to how Solomon uses this word. And the emotional aspect is, it's a frustrating thing. An emotional aspect of frustration. But there's also a mental aspect to it. It's puzzling. It's perplexing. It's inexplicable. I can't get to the bottom of it. The world's largest puzzle is the Kodak Premium Puzzle. Anybody here like puzzles? Put this on your Christmas list. Okay. I know one husband here, I'm not going to name him because this message is being recorded, likes to buy things that I recommend, books for her. And since she just said that she likes puzzles, I hope this man is listening. The Kodak Premium Puzzle is the world's largest puzzle. 51,300 pieces. 27 wonders from around the world. 28 and a half feet long, six and a half feet wide, and it costs about $550. And right now I'm hearing, you're not getting that for Christmas. <laughs> it's too expensive. And we, that's, a, that's a big puzzle. 28 and a half feet? That's not the illustration I'm going to use for the idea of a struggle, of elusive, of difficulty. I want you to try to picture that size puzzle of a polar bear in a snowstorm. Now that would be what? It, was, it would be frustrating, and it would be a, boy, that would be a mental exercise. That would be hard, wouldn't it? That's why our English word for vanity, it really doesn't communicate what Solomon is trying to get across by using this word. It doesn't correctly and fully communicate what he's trying to get across. Solomon says that trying to make sense, trying to make sense of and to see purpose of life in a sin-cursed world, it is a frustrating puzzle. Two words that can help give the sense of havel, so how to understand it. 
In the context of Ecclesiastes, two words that I encourage you to write down and try to remember, I will definitely be repeating. The first one is frustrating. First one is frustrating. The second word is going to be your 25 cent word of the day that you get to learn if you haven't used it too much. And the word is enigma, E-N-I-G-M-A. It is an enigma. An enigma is something that's hard to understand or explain. It's a puzzle. It's a mystery to you. How should you understand the Hebrew word Havel when it's read here? Think of it as an enigma or something that's frustrating. You might say, well, that's going to make reading chapter 1, verse 2, or chapter 12, verse uh, 8, hard. Because vanity of vanities is easier to say, frustrating enigma, frustrating enigma, says the preacher. Frustrating enigmas, all is frustratingly enigmatic. That's hard, isn't it? We have expressions in the Bible. Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Why is that doubled like that? To show its greatness. They didn't use bold face or bigger type words or underlining. They would express it in the words and how they put those words together. And so by saying, so what he's basically saying in chapter 1 verse 2 and chapter 12 verse 9 there is, Life in a sin-cursed world, it is really hard to make sense of from a, sin, from a sinner's perspective. But you can, and you find, can learn. Number four, the message of the book involves five aspects. The message of the book involves five aspects. Number one, man is finite, F-I-N-I-T-E. Finite. That means you're limited in how much you can know, how long you'll live. All those things. In every way, we are finite. Number two, the world is affected by sin. Sin touches everything. Sin affects everything. Men and animals, rich and poor, wise and foolish, that affects our experiences in the world. Everything is affected by sin. Number three, because man is fallen and limited, he cannot comprehend. Because man is fallen and limited, he cannot comprehend life in a fallen world. What I mean there is fully comprehended by man. The point here is that there is nothing in this world that gives you the key to unlock meaning and purpose of life. Did you hear what I said? There's nothing in this world that gives you the key to understand what's the meaning and purpose of life. Where do you find the ability to learn meaning and purpose of life? That's number four. Sinful man must have a right relationship. A right relationship with the creator to whom he is responsible. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all. Number five, if one has such a relationship with God, he can wisely enjoy life. He can wisely enjoy life. That is a positive thing. And that comes through several times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. 
you can, Christian, and wisely enjoy the things of this life as believers. Like what? Food. Drink. Even work. It says uh, somewhere in Ecclesiastes, rejoice with a, with a wife of your youth. All that your hands find to do, do it with all your might. These are all positive things. But you can't truly enjoy these things unless you know the Lord. Unless you trust Christ. And remember that God is judge. Go to chapter 11, verse 9. The first, one of the first verses that David read this morning. Chapter 11, verse 9. We see this idea of a right relationship and wisely enjoying life here. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. We'll stop there. Guess what happens, young people, when you get older? You probably hear your parents talk about it. Oh, my back, or oh, I hurt, or I just can't remember that. We did three weddings this year. I did, did one at Carmel yesterday, seeing these young people get married. Would you want to be young again, Dan? No, but boy, my legs sure do hurt because I'm old. You know, you think about those things, and Kohelet, the preacher, Solomon says, if you're young, rejoice in your youth. Rejoice in it. Do fun things that you like to do. And then he says, at the end of verse 9, but know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. So, this sounds like pleasure-driven living, but that's not Solomon's point here. His point is enjoy life Enjoy life by keeping it within the God-given boundaries. Enjoy life by keeping it in the God-given boundaries. There are Christians, professing Christians, who've said, oh, we shouldn't enjoy life. It's all evil. That's wrong. Who made this world? God did. Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy, where some were speaking bad against marriage and food. Folks, I love food. I love marriage. Is there anything wrong with those things? No. But we must enjoy them in a God-given boundaries and parameters. So the main point, the main message, that's what that little finger-pointing thing there means, is Ecclesiastes says that while life in a fallen world, while life in a fallen world makes no sense to man, while life in a fallen world makes no sense to man, he can wisely enjoy. While life in a fallen world makes no sense to man, he can wisely enjoy life if he is right with God. While life in a fallen world makes no sense to man, he can wisely enjoy life if he is right with God. Is that a negative thing? Negative message? That's a great message, isn't it? And that's what Ecclesiastes is going to help us understand. Let me put it another way. God has to shape your thoughts. He has to control how you think. Ecclesiastes will help us with that. 
so that you're not thinking like an unbeliever, but you're thinking in the fear of the Lord. That's the only way. The only way. Guess what will happen when you try to do it yourself? You are going to be frustrated, and everything will seem like an, what's the new word you just learned today? Enigma, okay? It will be a frustrating enigma. On the other side of your sheet, I have an outline of Ecclesiastes for you. Let me give you a, just a first a, a note about this. If you compare my outline with your study Bible, I don't know what study Bible you have, you're going to see some differences between my outline and your study Bible's outline. Or if you have a commentary, you're going to see some differences. Like what? Well, mine is not academic. I started an academic outline but you know what I thought? That's not going to help you. And so I don't care about getting published. I definitely don't care about getting famous. I just want you to understand the book better. He has an introduction in verses 1 through 11. That'll be the first passage I preach. Number one, it's just about impossible to get ahead in life. There's a word that Solomon uses, advantage. To what advantage? Or is there any advantage? And that's the idea here. Why is it seemingly impossible to get ahead in life? Well, because of, number one, different experiences in life, what people accomplish and know, and what people experience in the judgment of God. But it's also seemingly impossible to get ahead in life, number two, because of the difficult experiences in life, such as oppression and work and wealth. Well, since all this is true, you must live a godly life in a sin-cursed world Number two, main point two, you must live a godly life even though you can't figure out what God is doing. Have you ever felt that way? Lord, I don't know what you're doing. You must live a godly life. He has his introduction to this section. And then number two, man can't figure out what God is doing in the present. He can't figure out how there can be good times and bad times, how right and wrong seem to be dealt with, and how God works things out. He can't figure out what God will do in the future. So not just in the present, but in the future. He says, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I'm going to die. Wisdom's great, but it can't help you know the future. And even though you know the future, you should work hard. And all this, you've got to live a godly life. His conclusion, enjoy life in a God-fearing manner, knowing God's sure judgment. That we just read there in chapter 11, in verse 9. Ecclesiastes is going to teach you, Oral Bible Church, it's going to teach you, Christian, uh, it's going to teach you wisdom. Wisdom is the skillful application of truth. Behind and underneath and the foundation of Ecclesiastes is the truth of Genesis to Deuteronomy. And Solomon was the wisest man. He had this God-given skill to apply that to life. And as you dig into this, you are going to learn wisdom. You're going to learn what it's like to live in the fear of the Lord. You're going to learn how life in a sin-cursed world should be lived. And I'm going to be emphasizing, you must repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ because that is essential for living a skillful, God-honoring, God-pleasing life. And if you don't, you're just going to muddle through life. It's not going to make any sense. It's going to be frustrating. But when you do trust Christ, He gives you eyes to see and ears to hear. His Word is a lamp 
for your feet and a light to your path. It is good and it is God's grace.